Hi, and welcome to the Real World Behavioural Science Podcast, where we look at behavioural science and social science and how this is being used in the real world to help change the public's health for good. My name's Stu King, and I've got a background in public health, working in the NHS, local authorities, and public health England as an obesity and physical activity lead, and as a behaviour change intervention designer in my company, Busybodies. I'm excited to be creating this podcast on behalf of the Behavioural Science and Public Health Network, who exist to bring together professionals with an interest in behavioural and social science and public health, and to improve the knowledge and practices used by professionals across a range of industries. You can join the BSPHN for £25 if you're working, and just £10 if you're not working, including if you're a student, to get all the benefits of being part of an active and vibrant network of behaviour change professionals and enthusiasts. Today we've had some really fascinating guests from across academia, industry and government and we've been exploring what they do and how they do it to improve people's lives in the real world. Today I'm really pleased to welcome Dr Nick Cavill to the podcast. Nick is the director of an independent public health consultancy and a senior honorary research fellow at the University of Bristol and he likes to refer to himself as a quasi-academic which we'll get into later. He specialises in the development of policy and programmes on public health issues, particularly focusing on obesity, sustainable transport and physical activity. Nick's also advised on topics as diverse as mental health, drinking water availability, young people's social development and sport and social development. Much of Nick's career has been spent advising government on developing guidance, policies and strategies around a range of public health topics. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you. Okay, Nick, if you could just tell us a little bit about your journey to where you are now. Um, thanks. Yeah. Well, it's quite a strange journey, actually. Um, and it's led to me having quite a sort of quite a weird uh, job title, as you said in the introduction. Um, I started off at the Health Education Authority, uh, one of these quangos that was uh, closed down many years ago. Um, a quango, just for our, our listeners. Quasar, quasi-autonomous, non-governmental organisation. Uh-huh. So something like Public Health England now is the, the modern equivalent of Health Education Authority. But as the name suggests, it was interested in health education. So, and perhaps I'll mention that later, the fact that people thought just educating people about health was the answer. Um, but I was, I was really lucky. I fell into a job at the Health Education Authority. I had a background in town planning, not in public health. Um, but by working there, um, I just learned loads of different aspects of, sort of public health approaches. And I was around at the time when the National Fitness Survey came out in uh, 1992, showing my age, um, and that led to the government taking a big interest in physical activity. And uh, to be honest, I was at the right stage of my career when the a big campaign and program was commissioned, and I became the, the manager of that program and, and um, developed it and, and led the physical activity program across the Health Education Authority for a few years. Then, when they wound um, the Health Education Authority up what they call the bonfire of the Quangos, when lots of these organisations were closed down for sort of political reasons, really. Um, I set up on my own as an independent consultant, and that was pretty much because I, through working nationally, I just met so many, made so many contacts and learned so much about things like behaviour change and other things, um, that I felt as if I could uh, go it alone. So I've been independent since 2000, I think, working with Department of Health, Public Health England, lots of universities, uh, lots of organisations interested in walking, cycling, like Trans Living Streets and others. And it's usually what I do really is a mixture of, I call myself a consultant, but you don't often get paid for consultancy. You know, here's some money, tell me what you know. You know, that's quite unusual. 
it's more usual to, to deliver a service. So frequently that's evaluation. So if someone would commission us to evaluate a service, conduct interviews, run surveys and so on, and report back. Um, quite often I advise on things and help to support programmes. Sometimes I do pure consultancy, but it's usually a mixture of research and, and evaluation services. Yeah, and, and as you say, we, we worked together um, on, in the physical activity space a few years ago um, when I suppose you, you were being um, paid by PHE through the um, knowledge and intelligence team, but actually lent a hand quite a lot onto a lot of the physical activity work that we were doing. Um, and is that is that an example of the, the you, you had to go and do a project or, or a regular project with PHE, but... Um, actually, you then get pulled into all sorts of different projects based on what's going on. Yes, I mean that was um, I was involved with with Harry Rutter in setting up the new the National Obesity Observatory, mm -hmm. uh, and Harry had a you know quite a modern approach to developing such organisations. They weren't going to be um, centralised with lots of office space and desks and so on. It was very much a decentralised model, working with freelancers and independent people um, to deliver what they delivered best rather than necessarily ha having a big staff of people on salaries. So that's how I ended up in that sort of position because it was uh, an attempt to have quite a sort of flexible organisation using working with different people. And you know, that, that approach has continued quite a bit, which suits me because I don't really want to have a proper job. <laughs> OK. What, what is it, Nick, that your, uh, your current role entails uh, how, and how does it involve behavioural science? But the funny thing is, you know, when you asked me to do this podcast, I thought behaviour science, I don't know anything about that. And then, you know, when you explain more and I look back at what was entailed, I guess I realised that you were cleverer than me. And you'd realise that, um, you know, virtually everything I've done in my career has got some aspect of behavioural science in it, even if I haven't actually studied the topic. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, all my nearly all my work involves revolves around change, trying to change something. Uh, you could be grand and say it's trying to change society or change social norms or change systems. Or back in the day when I first started in this work, we thought of it as changing individuals. You know, we were running campaigns to teach people about the benefits of exercise that we, I think now naively thought would instantly lead to behavior change. And so, yeah, at the heart of my work, I suppose, is trying to change the world you know, one step at a time. Um, particularly, and it just you know happens that I'm lucky enough to be able to work in the topics I'm most interested in, which is getting people to be more physically active, improve their health, and um, and also helping the environment through more active travel. You know, the, the world I'd like to change would have fewer cars and more people walking and cycling. And and um, you, you mentioned there about um, you know, when you first started out, you were trying to do individuals, you're trying to change individuals, um, and now you sort of might think of it slightly differently so how have things moved on from when you started and you thought by giving people this information about physical activity for example we'll change them to now how you would approach that same issue well i'm probably exaggerating a bit because we weren't we weren't that stupid or that bad but you know back in the, the early 90s when i'd started this stuff like i said we worked for the health education authority and that was the prevailing um paradigm or the prevailing approach um, lots of money for public information campaigns. Um, it was the Health Education Authority was set up just after the big AIDS advertising campaigns were, were launched and it aired on TV, and all those leaflets were dropped through people's letterboxes. Um, for, you know, if 
if your listeners can re remember back then, um, Mrs. Thatcher's government paid for a, a leaflet to be delivered to every member, every young citizen across the UK, uh, warning them of the dangers of AIDS. And so it was very much this sort of principle or um, way of working that if we just taught people about the benefits of good things and the perils of bad things, um, they would change. Um, that was the prevailing rhetoric or the prevailing sort of approach. It was underlined with lots of other associated work, mm. um, but, but that's mainly what we did. So, for example, when, when I was tasked with setting up the Active for Life programme in 1996, and that was meant to be a three-year chunk of funding to make a difference to physical activity across the UK. And you know, two-thirds of that was spent on um, TV and press advertising to, to communicate messages about physical activity. Right. The, the um, uh, justification for that was that we had a new message. For those who know their physical activity history, it was kind of a shift from like the Jane Fonda, three times 20 minutes, vigorous exercise, no pain, no gain, aerobics world, to this launch of what we're now quite used to, the sort of moderate intensity everyday physical activity message. So it was, you don't have to go to the gym, you can just walk, you don't have to play a sport, you can just cycle to work. And the launching of this, the, the new sort of prescription or recommendation of half an hour a day of activity, we consider was a new fact or a new yeah, nugget of information. And the most effective and efficient way to get that across was by spending lots of money on public information campaigns. And that pro probably wouldn't ha happen now. You know, we've had, we have plenty of instances where public health messages are changed and you simply don't see the same sort of budgets going into direct public communication. And why, why do you think that is? Probably because we know it doesn't work. Okay. Or, we know it doesn't, or, or because we know it doesn't work on its own. Mm. And so I think there's now a more sophisticated understanding of the, the role of health education or the role of information and knowledge within individual and societal behaviour change. And um, it's more complex. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's not as simple. You know, we, we, we set up this big campaign and relatively naively measured knowledge, attitudes and behaviour and physical activity. And two years later, measured knowledge, attitudes and behaviour again and were disappointed when they hadn't changed. And I think now people wouldn't really expect that from a national campaign on a topic as uh, nuanced and as uh, complex as physical activity. And do you think you know, maybe if it was immunized, I was just going to say maybe if it was immunization rates that could be although that's complex too, but maybe if it's some a service or an issue that could be taken up relatively quickly, mm. say like the launch of a new vaccine, then you, you might imagine that to be measurable, you know, the impact to be measurable quite quickly. But something so entrenched as people's physical activity behavior, yeah, you know, these are lifelong changes, not overnight. And and so, for example, what do you think is different between um, what you did then with the Active for Life program and uh, what you were saying there about you know not putting uh, the same emphasis on advertising campaigns and something like the This Girl Can advertising campaign? Because obviously that was built almost entirely around um, getting the, getting a message out. I know that there was a lot more under it, but what what do you think the difference is between those those two campaigns? Well, I think. Um... So I'm a big fan of this girl can um, for a number of reasons. What the first is because I think the messaging is solid. You know, it's a it's a very it, it appears from the outside to be a very thoroughly researched and solid set of messages based around the market research that's shown that 
um, for a lot of women, have significant psychological barriers to being physically active, um, meaning they, they feel they're not the sort of people who can take this up. And so the This Girl Can campaign tries to tackle that at grassroots level. And to my mind, it's it's like a slow drip feed campaign. That's what I like about it. When we did our campaign or a lot of campaigns, they think they're going to change the world overnight. Mm. And it seems as though with This Girl Can, they realise they've just got to keep on going. they just got to keep on saying the same thing over and keep on pushing out supportive messages and encouraging people to think differently about the topic rather than something happening overnight. And it seems but as the, though they, they really got into the the genuine issues that women were facing um, with regards to physical activity. So they sort of got, I think it, they, they mentioned that it came down to judgment of each other, of themselves and judgment from men. And it, for me, that, that whole campaign really did speak to that issue of judgment specifically. So they were, it felt very, very targeted at a specific issue. And I think they did that really well. I do too, but I think the, the more striking contrast would be between the health education campaigns of the late 80s and 90s. Um, you know, I, I don't want to, particularly if my old colleagues are listening, I don't want to um, make out that we did a bad job of this because we didn't, we did the best job we could, but it was just a different way of thinking about behavior change. We, you know, we did our best and we tried to integrate public education messages with a lot of working with communities and with specific target audiences and with stakeholders and so on. But I've been pretty struck. I'm working with two or three, two soon to be three, of these local delivery pilots funded by Sport England, uh, which are projects funded across the UK to promote physical activity. You know, no one's got the answer. Everyone keeps trying. And this is the latest attempt to try. And what these projects are doing is using the term whole systems approach. And they're trying to stimulate whole systems change across towns and cities or across settings. Some of them are quite small localities uh, in England. So they're pilot projects and they're working locally. So it's not an attempt to do this big national thing. And they're trying really to stimulate action right across the system. And what I mean by the system, well, in a way, it's really anything or anyone who might come together to influence people's ability to be physically active. And, uh, you know, if I'm honest, when I first heard this, I thought, oh, here we go again. Another well-meaning pilot, a few hundred thousand quid thrown at some cities to promote to do some more campaigns and they're going to measure before and after and they're not going to see any change and someone like me might be paid to be an advisor for a couple of years and it's all jolly good. I've actually been quite quietly impressed. No, not quietly, I've told them, but I've been quite impressed with the genuine way that uh, the towns I've been working with, Greater Manchester and Doncaster, are really trying to get under the skin of this whole systems business. And what they've said is that they're not expecting to see measurable changes in physical activity in two years. We know you gave us the money, Sport England, to change the physical activity system. That's what we're going to do. We're going to change the system. That doesn't mean to say we're going to get more people active so quickly, because it takes years and years to change the system, first of all, before we can see changes in people's behaviour. And so what, as evaluators, I'm advising on the evaluation of this, um, we're, we're working quite hard to define what that means. You know, what does, what does systems change look like? And how do you measure it? And so that's, for me, very interesting because we're kind of taking a step back from individual level psychological motivational behaviours and combi models and all that. And we're saying, actually, we need to think about societal level or organisational level or system level indicators and see see what changes. Yeah, and, and look at the um, the structural environment. And, and so if you can provide a, a facilitative structural environment, then 
you know, you've then got a chance for people to be uh, to be able to be physically active. I suppose it's the difference. What we've been talking about with some other guests on the show is about the difference between life chances and life choices, and where we've always focused historically on people's life choices, their lifestyle choices. Actually, what what you're focusing in on now is providing an environment or helping to provide an environment where there's at least the chance of being physically active, and then the lifestyle choices bit comes a bit later down the line. Yes, it was. It's really interesting. Um, as I've explained, uh, you know, I, I landed my job at the Health Education Authority when I was pretty young and kind of starry-eyed, and I just went with the flow of what the prevailing paradigm was. And I remember distinctly standing up um, at the launch of the big campaign, and we had all these beautiful adverts and shiny PR brochures and glossy magazine. Um, ads and everything and I was very proud of it you know but my me and the team I worked with had worked really hard on this stuff and we got some of the best advertisers from Soho and along and all this you know we, and so we were very proud of launching this shiny campaign and it was essentially the heart of it was saying to people you don't have to exercise too much you can just walk and cycle um you should choose to do that or you can choose to do that and we thought it was marvellous. And uh, 99% of the invited audience thought it was marvellous. And I was collared by a woman, uh, who I, actually I can't remember her name, I won't say it, um, from, uh, who was involved in social work. And um, she said, you just don't understand. You just don't get it, do you? It's not about people choosing to be active. She said, what about the, and she gave me lots of characterizations of people who couldn't choose. Well, I can't quite remember exactly what she said, but what about the single mum in the tower block? What about the ethnic minority family who haven't got the money to exercise? What about people with three jobs? And so, and I felt battered and assaulted because my beautiful campaign was being attacked. Mm. And, you know, guess what? 25 years on, she was absolutely right. You know, she was spot on because it's obviously about locating behaviour change within the wider society and within people's real lives and the reality of their lives. And uh, but also more about what you just said, which is the upstream or the wider determinants. You know, mm. at a city level, isn't it more about um, street lighting and safe places and not having streets where we're frightened of knife crime? Uh, it's much more about that to get people out and walking than it is telling them walking is good for them or giving them a free pedometer. Yeah, and what and why do you think that is? What what do you think um, it is about the an individual level that is that prevents people from um, listening to the good advice uh, that you gave them in the eighties and nineties and getting out and walking? What what is the difference? Is it that they're scared to go out or? Or is it something actually even even more basic than that? Well, I mean, there's been tons of research into the barriers to physical activity. Every study that comes out will probably list a different barrier at the top of its list. Um, it, whether it's quantitative surveys or qualitative focus groups, um, it will always say, I haven't got the time. It's nearly always the top message. And then, of course, we have you know, loads and loads of examples of people who are extremely busy and have very time pressured jobs and lives and they find the time to be active. So for me, it's about um, this idea of decisional balance, you know, a bit of, that's a bit of behavior change jargon. I know some of this, although I haven't studied it properly. Um, with, with people able to you know, weigh up the pros and cons and decide what's best for them in their situation. But I think the, the element that it 
is often underestimated by people focusing on behaviour change is the environment. And by that, I mean the social environment, the physical environment, the political environment, and yeah, the reality of people's lives. Because it's, it's clearly not just about motivation um, to improve oneself or to get some fresh air. Um, when you've got three jobs and gig economy and can't afford to feed the kids, and you know, it just goes down the priority list. Yeah. And so you know, we, have to, we have to try and take a sort of more nuanced view yeah. Um, okay, cool. So you, you spoke about this a little bit already, actually. Um, but I wonder if there's anything else you, you want to say about the um, the state of behavioural science, if it comes up as that as that term in in, in your world at the moment. Because I know you're across academics and uh, and policy and public health. Um, is it being used effectively in, in the industry that you're working in, or the industries that you're working in? It's interesting that. So I mean, I. I, I um... I certainly don't consider myself an expert in behaviour change or behavioural science, um, but I've dabbled in elements of it throughout my career. It was really interesting to do a project recently for Living Streets. Um, they are very interested in, well, they, they started off as the uh, campaigning charity for walking and have, as, a, like, as with many of these agencies, like Sustrans and others, have kind of drifted into the world of behaviour change. So Sustrans started by building bike paths and, and cycling infrastructure. They were an engineering charity. Mm-hmm. And then they start to get money from government and others to promote walking and cycling. And the same with Living Streets. They started off by being the campaigning voice of the pedestrian. They were used to be called the Pedestrian Association. And they've sort of been dragged into the, you know, if they're running campaigns or walking weeks or walk on Wednesday and walk to school weeks, they become campaigners and become behaviour change people. And it's very interesting that they, they put out a tender for advice and input on behaviour change science because they said, we, we think we're doing this stuff okay, but we've never really studied it. Can you check us, review our programme, compare it against behaviour change models or behavioural science, tell us what, we're, what we could do better. And it was really interesting that I, I think they were a good case study that answers your question about the state of the industry. They were dabbling, but they were dabbling quite well. So they picked up elements of behaviour change, many many of which were just sort of natural ways of relating to people. Mm. So, um, for example, you might talk about the trans-theoretical model behaviour change that says you speak differently to people who are at low readiness to change or pre-contemplators to those who are ready to change and high readiness to change and so-called preparators or people in the action phase. Um, and Almost no one in Living Streets had studied that or knew what the phrase trans-theoretical model, I can hardly say it, but they didn't know what it meant. They'd, some of them had come across um, pre-contemplation, contemplation and so on. But they kind of knew instinctively that when they were in a workplace and they were chatting to someone about walking, would, and would you like to get involved in a walk-to-work campaign, that if someone said, oh, no, I just always drive, I can't be bothered, thanks, mate, and walks off, then it probably wasn't a very good investment in their time to chase after them and say, but have you had my latest leaflet? Whereas, <laughs> whereas if they were chatting or if they had, a, in this case, they had a stand in the lobby and people would come up and say, oh, are you running the thing about walking? Oh, I'm quite interested. That was worth their time. So for them instinctively, it was some aspects, some basic aspects of behavioural science were kind of obvious. And the same with things like the the common B model, the capacity, opportunity, motivation, leading to behaviour change. 
they kind of got elements of that as well. They understood that people need to have, as we talked about just now, people need to have the individual um, capacity to, or capability, sorry, to change, but also the opportunities within their life and within their environment. So I, I think they, they summed up um, the state of behaviour change, which is many of us have a basic notion of what it involves and can apply the basics. But we probably all, including me, could do a lot better if we studied it a bit more and used some of the best science that's, that's around. Yeah, I think that's a really, really interesting um, and coherent point. The, the, and, and I'm interested to, to sort of probe that a little bit and, and um, ask you've because you've been around in, in the public health space for a long time. Um, wh- whether you feel like there is a, a, a certain um, zeitgeist or there's it's become a bit of a buzzword in some in some circles behavior change or behavioral science has become one of those things um that you often see in the public health industry and probably in all industries actually um we certainly see it a lot in tenders uh and in national meetings that i go to now and and stuff like that it's coming up a lot and i think you have to stop and ask well what do you mean by behavioral science Uh, yeah because it's not a it's not a there's not necessarily a common language that everyone's got for it. So is that something you've seen um, starting to come through in, in, you know, work that you're tendering for people you're working with that you have to sort of gauge where they're at with it? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, for, and for some people um, it's relatively new to talk about the stages of behavior change. Now I'm pretty sure the stages of behavior change went out of fashion about 15 years ago, Mm. but still that, that I find is a very coherent and easy to understand way of explaining a basic um, approach to behaviour change, which is you know, to deliver a message according to how, people, how ready people are to change. Um, and so it, it, some, it almost embarrasses me sometimes to stand up in, in some training course and, and put up the behaviour change wheel or the behaviour change spectrum and talk people through that. But it is a, a good way into the topic. Um, but I suppose what has happened is, as you said, there is a bit of a zeitgeist and people are jumping on the bandwagon a little bit, perhaps without fully understanding it. And, and you know, if I'm honest, I might be one of those people as well. So when when um, I recently uh, answered this tender to work with Living Streets on behaviour change science, I had to study it myself in order to, to review their programme. You know, I had to understand what the latest thinking was. Yeah. I mean, I mean, part of that must be, though, at least that you're looking at what their conception of behaviour change science is. So where are, are, they, are they at the trans theoretical model of the uh, yeah. scale or are they at the, you know, the, the behaviour change techniques end of the scale, which is sort of, you know, using all of the behaviour change wheel and, and all of the, the, the stuff that sits underneath it. Yeah. It, it. Just just to get an idea of how to pitch the work that you're doing and, and how to support them best, I suppose. Uh, you probably need to research it from that perspective at the very least. Yeah, that's right. And the um, the behaviour change wheel is a great example, isn't it? Because that really, um, I think that's been a fantastic innovation in terms of simplifying the, the language to some extent and focusing it and giving people a usable tool, which I find in public health is, is frequently what people want. They don't so much want the jargon and the academic fluff and the... Um, systematic reviews and the meta-analyses they want a useful practical tool they can use and apply to their work and that's what i think the behavior change world has been really good at 
Yeah, it's good to, to sort of, I think people fundamentally understand if, you, if you're using the, the combi model, for example, it's quite simple to describe. It's easy for people to understand. Um, the fact that there's loads of stuff underneath it is a bonus, but at the, at the basic level, I think people get the fact that there is, you know, these three elements of, of understanding how to help someone change. Yeah, why was it never called comb though? Sure, it should be comb. Yeah, exactly. we're, we're working on that in in uh, busybodies at the moment, and uh, people who are coming in new to it are going, "Why? Why is it called comb?" And I'm like, yeah. it's not. <laughs> but but I could just be called com. I don't know. It doesn't really need the B. I, I don't know. I, I, I am hopefully going to interview Susan and and uh, Robert on this show. Okay. I will ask them that. They're they're other people that the. Um, the uh, the guys at the BSPHN are well connected to, so I'm, I'm hoping to get an interview with a couple of those, and, and I'll ask them that question. I'll, I'll be sure. Well, you can subscribe actually, Nick, to this this podcast, and you can listen to the answer. Of course, I will. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, so uh, to move on, what what should we do more of today to ensure that people in the real world are benefiting from good behaviour change science or behavioural science? Well, I'm not trying to advertise my services here, honest. No, go ahead. But the I thought. The, this thing that I've referred to that Living Streets did was really clever. Uh, so they specifically asked the question, well, they asked the question of themselves that you have just asked me. So they said, as an organisation, what are we doing well with um, behavioural change techniques? And where, where can we work better? And um, it would be great if organisations did that more, wouldn't it? Mm. If they said, um, we think we're dabbling, we think we've probably got some good practice, we know we could do better, let's get some help with this. I, I thought that was a, a very clever, informed approach. And really all it meant, all it took was a step back to consider their activities and to say, um, to ask of themselves, are we doing this the right way? Are we using the best available knowledge, best available techniques to reach our objectives? Because as with all of us, the temptation is just to do it the same way each, each time, each campaign, each year, each project or whatever, just trot out the same mm -hmm. template. Mm -hmm. Instead of saying, it must be a better way, let's, let's get some help. And what environment, I mean, having worked in, um, well, I've certainly worked in local local public health teams and in um, Public Health England, and it, it definitely matters the political environment that you find yourself in. For, to have to have the a culture and at least one manager or, or a group of managers that are willing to ask those questions, because with those questions come the potential for failure. So how do you how do you see the industry accepting the risk of failure? Because I think it's a quite a risk averse industry we often find ourselves in. Yeah, I don't know really. I suppose it's it's not so much about seeing it as failure, but as as looking for potential to improve. Yeah, you know, just trying to say to ask of our programs or our approaches, are there better ways to do this? So I know that you're involved in lots of evaluation work in the public health space, both at a national uh, level and in individual projects. So, do you feel like the um, we could involve we could involve people like yourself earlier in this process, so that we can set up projects differently, so that they're they're designed to um, genuinely demonstrate what is demonstrable and not overpromise what's going to be uh, possible to, to you know public health leaders or to politicians within public health teams yeah absolutely um, evaluators should be brought on board before the program is designed in a perfect world you know actually before it's thought about conceived launched certainly before it's made real and launched but quite often we'll have some program or intervention and at best 
three months before it's launched, the evaluation team come on board or the tech that goes out and they come on board two weeks after it's been launched and they've got no real influence on the actual um, intervention or program itself. Um, and that, you know, that, and that's a um, dysfunctional system really. It's probably because we're seeing, we're viewing evaluators as auditors or measurers or people who judge the yeah. thing. Yeah. Whereas of course, if, you know, particularly if you're buying expertise from university colleagues, um, they've studied this stuff, so they don't just know how to measure it, they know how to design it, and they know how the best techniques, whether it's behaviour change techniques or others, that something should be built upon. So I'm, it's easy to say, but I'm a real fan of the idea of an academic partnership, you know, to getting academics on board or, or getting expert advisors on board early to help design the thing as well as measure it. And, um, and that, that means... That, sorry, we, we, and we worked together, what, five, six years ago, so... so we, we were having that conversation then. Is it better now? Yeah. <laughs> um, I've seen a few examples where it has been better. I've seen a few examples where evaluators have been asked to help input to the programme. Um, but in general, no, things change quite slowly. And frequently as evaluators, we will, we will look at the actual objectives. You know, we get sent a piece of paper. I'm going to rattle it for the podcast. We get sent a brief mm-hmm. for the evaluation. And we look at the objectives of the programme so, dear evaluator, we would like you to measure whether we have achieved these objectives. And our first thought is, why did you choose those objectives? That's crazy. We can tell you right now you wouldn't achieve those. Mm. And so, if only they had asked us three years before. And I, I don't, you know, that sounds a little arrogant. I don't mean it to be that way. But, uh, but by the, the, this comes from being um, objective and on the outside and having seen some of the things that haven't worked. Um, whereas often people are sort of um, running programs or projects the same way that they've always been run and they get kind of objective overload and they say, oh, can, yeah, let's add this as well. Oh, and then we'll, then we'll do cost-effectiveness studies. Oh, yeah, put cost-effectiveness down. And people don't realise really, really what can be achieved and actually how focused we have to be sometimes on just achieving the three top objectives out of the list of 15. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so... Now, I know you said that you're you're not a behavioural scientist and you're a quasi quasi academic, but what are you most excited or curious about in behaviour change or behavioural science right now, or just in your industry that you think has some you know behavioural connotations? Um, complex system mapping. So, oh, yeah. um, I, I sent you one, didn't I? One you of did, those yeah, mind boggling yeah, yes. maps. They brought back um, horrific memories of having to decipher foresight, the BC yeah, systems. It's the same thing. So it's it's um, applying the mapping techniques that foresight used when they mapped obesity, which I think moved the obesity world on quite significantly. Um, but what didn't happen uh, was a use of that approach uh, locally or for a particular project. So I think foresight had the foresight. You know, they, they were forward thinking in terms of kind of uh, launching the idea and, and establishing the idea that obesity is the result of a complex system and that you can't just do linear single interventions. Mm-hmm. Um, but people overlooked the maps. People saw these maps and they went, oh, look at that, that's a mess. Oh, spaghetti. Oh, terrible. It's all too much, it's all too overwhelming. What I've been doing recently is kind of simplifying that approach and working with people to work with them. And by them, I mean you know, stakeholders, people, professionals involved in some sort of programme to use that mapping technique to get down on one sheet of paper the influences 
on the behavior or the issue they're interested in as a way to help them plan a new program. So these things are almost like uh, mind maps, some people have called them. You might have the central issue in the middle that it might say. So we've done a lot of work with PhD on mental health, for instance. So we might say in the middle might be uh, positive mental health and well-being for young people. That's the outcome we want. And then circles or nodes are called linked to those that are all the things that might influence young people's mental health and well-being. And what we found is when you get the right room of multiple stakeholders from across the system, you get tons of different interesting, rich experiences that combine together and you can connect. So the, the person, the, the psychologist or the, the person at the front line of delivering mental health services will have a completely different perspective on that problem to someone who's really interested in social media and the role of social media in developing or damaging young women's self-esteem, for example, mm -hmm. or pushing positive body images. Yeah. Um, and yet both are valid and both have a connection and both have a potential intervention route. You know, we might do some work with social media or we might improve mental health services. And this, this idea of kind of mapping the system is not really about saying which is the most important, but it's trying to explore how things are connected and how we can exploit those connections. So the goal or the, the thing we're trying to find is a so-called feedback loop. So the thing or the intervention or the approach or the program that might have a bigger system-wide impact than if we'd done something on its own. So what we found so far, so I, I've been doing this with, I don't know, we've done about 10 or 15 of these sort of mapping projects with different organizations on different topics. And it's not produced any silver bullets, you know, it doesn't lead to amazing light bulb moments when you say, oh, and then if we just do this, then everything will be okay. But it's helped people to um, understand this, their system better. So that's by their system, I mean all the influences across their particular topic and the different players. It's helped them see their role in the system and the part that they play. So even if someone is interested in just delivering, I shouldn't say just, even if someone is focused on delivering their service to their community and their part of the world, they can see that that's connected to other players and other stakeholders who are also interested in the same topic. And for those whose job or interest is in taking a system-wide view, they can see how everything is connected and perhaps find approaches that exploit some of the system levers and, and system-wide, so basically sort of added value. And in a, in so, a, in a basic way, could you give us a, 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 an example of that? So the, the, the way that so we're interested in feedback loops and sort of knock-on positive and negative consequences of an action. So if we took a simple approach, you know, a sort of linear model, if you like, uh, we want more kids to walk to school. Uh, we have a problem in our school with young people being driven. So we're going to put on a walking bus and we're going to encourage parents to meet at the corner of the street and they'll all get together and um, become volunteers and they'll have some sort of rotor and they'll be organised through Facebook and the kids will be walked to school. And because it's important that they're kept safe, we'll, we'll put them in in yellow tabards and because it's important that they're disciplined we'll make them walk in, in pairs along the street or two by two and it'll all be nicely organized and the, the children will get safe to school and you could argue if that was a simple intervention that is designed to get these kids to walk to school more often or get more kids to walk to school that it was effective but then you sit with a group of um road safety people and they say um well, it's not only about tabards, oh, we need crossing patrols because we're not having, we can't have those kids walking across the, across the crossings unmonitored. 
and you talk to the busy mum and she says, oh, well, actually, now that now the kids are walking to school and they're walking bus, that means it won't be quite so busy around the school. So actually, I can drive up to the school gates more easily now because the because the, the kids are being shepherded in. And then the other mums go, um, well, actually, I, I can't fit into the walking bus. But look at them, they're all in yellow jackets. God, even walking is dangerous now. I'm definitely going to start driving my child to school. And it starts to add to the social norm that walking on your own with a friend, or I hate to even mention it, like they do in the Netherlands, or like we used to 20 years ago, on your own to primary school is unacceptable now because you've got to go in the walking bus. You've got to wear a yellow jacket. And next year it'll be crash helmets. You know, and so I'm exaggerating a little, but it's it's a way that things can particularly contribute to social norms and have knock-on undesirable impacts. And so if you settle that on the system, we can have a little map, we can have walking to school as a kind of central outcome and all the different things that might or might not happen that help people to get an understanding that actually perhaps a walking bus is not the best idea and perhaps having a um, air quality exclusion zone around the school, banning school uh, Running cars from approaching school within half a mile, uh, combined with a social marketing campaign to school mums and dads to stop them from driving, combined with encouraging some parents to let their kids walk to school on their own, and so on. It may be a more effective system-wide response that basically tackles the, system, the, the issue from multiple angles rather than just one. Yeah, that's a really, a really interesting point that you raised there. It's sort of setting the, um, the environment and letting people come up with their own solutions almost rather than providing a ready-made solution that could have unintended consequences attached to it yeah, yeah. and i suppose another example you know might be as i know you know well exercise referral schemes first reaction is you know when i was i was involved with these things when they were first launched in the uh, early days of the health education authority and it's like a revelation or your doctor can prescribe exercise now and it seems like a really sensible idea as a as a simple model ill person goes to the hospital, uh, sorry, goes to doctor, doctor says, you should exercise more, here's a ticket to go and exercise more. And, you know, we, we saw what happened. All the unintended consequences of, of leisure services, trying to make more money by getting customers in the day that they didn't get uh, normally, that by basically trying to expand their market, um, poor risk assessment, GPs being frightened to refer people, uh, schemes becoming overcomplicated with excessive risk assessment forms and, and so on, and ineffective schemes being developed that were then deemed by nice to be cost ineffective. So I'm sorry to say it, but it's never as simple as we'd like to make out. And so what some of this complex systems mapping is about is actually acknowledging the complexity and trying to deal with it rather than brush it away and say, oh, actually, let's just, why don't we just do this approach? And I'm sure it'll work, really. And, and, and actually, to create something that is simple for people, you actually have to do a lot of work in make it in and get into some deep complexity to understand all of the issues to be able to sort of have accounted for the unintended consequences um, before mm. it becomes actually simple for people yeah that, could you give me an example i know you're asking me the questions but what, what do you mean well the I, I i think through things like i mean i i read lots of different types of books and and in, in running uh, busybodies i um read a lot of books about management and and I this is a bit of a random example actually but I, I, I really love um, Apple products um, quite 
they're annoying me a bit now, but I, I certainly love love the journey and and um, Steve Jobs, love him or hate him, and I think some people do both. I'm one of them. I don't think he was the best guy, but he was a genius, no doubt. He, he's his focus on getting into the complexity in order to give the consumer something that was just effortless uh, and it made complete sense was. I mean, the way he describes it was you, you just couldn't get into, you couldn't give someone this level of, of simplicity without having first dealt with a whole heap of complexity. And, and I think when yeah. people use something simple, they have got no idea about the work that went into it to, to deal with all the complexity. And your mapping being a simple version of the obesity systems mapping uh, that I remember being one of those people that you mentioned, the horrified people uh, in 2007 when that came out, because I was... Because I'd, I'd yeah. started Busy Bodies, but I was just going into the public health world in a much bigger way. Um, and I looked at it and just thought, good God, how could you do anything with this? And I have sat with that <laughs> a lot and, you know, the content of that. And if you really – I remember seeing a paper – well, it was a poster from – I think it was Medway Council where they took every point on the obesity systems map and they just said, how are we doing on this point? How are we doing on this? Oh, one? Great. How are we great. doing? This one? Exactly now I haven't been right. able to find that since, and I saw this about seven or eight years ago. But they, I'm not. I, they they are forward thinking in many ways. There's a guy there. I think his name's Scott, but I, I can't remember. Um, they're very forward thinking. Um, but just the fact that they they've taken the time to sit and and delve into the complexity of the obesity systems map, which is probably one of the most complex things that's come out in certainly obesity. Yeah. Um, you know, in the last years or so um and they they had a really good appreciation of where they were they said right well we do we're going to do these things really well and we can't touch these things and these things yeah. we'd love to do if we had the money or time or or expertise and i i haven't followed up with them on, on exactly what they've done but i now that i'm mentioning it, i probably will um but I, that's an example of of delving into complexity even when it's scary to do that to try and provide something that actually has a very simple out, outcome like a couple of key things that you can do with uh, people in your local area or with projects in your local area or policy in your local area that have that have been the the, the product of genuine um, complex you know genuinely uh, uh, engaging with the complexity means that the end user has a much better experience and, and another good example that we've been working through lately is is um, user experience UX in in apps yeah. when you use an app that's got that's been really well researched. Um, it's a completely different experience than when you use one yeah. that someone has thrown together from what they think people will like, and then you use it and you just go, this is absolute crap. That was our experience yeah. as we went through the, the iteration process. And it's so important to sort of pay it the attention it deserves to get an experience that actually is you know, succinct, clear, and simple for users. So I challenge you to use what I'm about to say in the actual final podcast. Okay. Okay. Um, so you're right. It's it's about um, getting all the complex work out of the way in order to make something simple. Reminds me of what Dolly Parton always says. Honey, it costs a lot of money to look this cheap. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I thought you were going to say something about the rainbow. Uh, what was that thing you said? Okay. I'll, I'll keep that in. <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep that in. I don't know if the BSPHN want me to keep it in, but I'll keep it in. Um, okay, so to to um, take this back to um, you personally. Oh, 
Yeah. <laughs> well, I want to bring this back to you personally and ask um, how you use your knowledge of, I mean, you've, you've got decades of, of experience in this field. Um, how do you use your knowledge of behaviour change or behavioural science in your personal life? I don't knowingly ever think, oh, well, there's evidence to show this, so I must do that in my life. But I know for sure from personal experience that routine really helps. So, if you, so I tend to try and exercise most days just because that becomes part of your routine. And I'm sure there's some evidence to support that. Um, I know there's good evidence for monitoring. So I try and weigh myself quite often and that, that I, from time to time use a pedometer, not all the time. But apart from that, not much. And I tell you where I really fail is with my children. You know, I, I'm uh, absolutely no expert at all in changing their behaviour regarding I have the screen use, eating vegetables, exercising more. I can certainly help you out with the um, the teenage vegetable screen time situation. But um, yeah, it's, it's just interesting. I, I think sometimes you're using it without really knowing. You, you, if you know what works for you um, in terms of getting you active. Like for me, it's not. it doesn't fit into my routine very well being physically active. And so I have to put things in place to to um, to make sure I do it. Um, one of the things is booking myself into lots of events. Otherwise, uh, yeah, good. I just struggle to prioritise it over. You know, we're running the business and whatever. It's it's just it, it's easy for that thing to fall fall by the wayside. And I and I love it when I do it. I know all of you know. I, I advise people on how to do this, but it's it really. I have to put lots of lots of things in place for me to actually uh, take care of my own health, which I think is common, but it doesn't sound yeah. good. It's not a good soundbite. No, but I think targets are good, aren't they, and routines. So it's interesting what you said just now about apps and apps making things more simple. And I also know the evidence shows that kind of supporting behaviour with regular prompts and uh, kind of rewards is important. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily look out for those things. So uh, I play the saxophone and I try and practice every day. So that's another thing I have to fit into the day. Uh, and the other day I downloaded an app and I didn't know that this thing had a well done, you've practiced for 15 minutes kind of flashing thing. Mm. And I actually quite like it. And I'm, I'm after this call, I'm going to make sure I, I get a reward for my little app. Now, you know, as usual with the evidence shows, how long that will sustain is another issue, isn't it? Because we've all worn pedometers for two months and given up. We've all had different movement tracking apps and Strava and all the rest of it and we usually give up but at least for a short term I think those those prompts are amazing really helpful and you know smartphones just help us do that with any aspect of our lives cool okay um so I've got um one last question and that is um what would your advice be to someone who's interested in getting into your field a quasi academic yeah well yeah so people do often ask me about um getting into my field in terms of my career style, you know, so because I'm self-employed in my own little business, but still work in the public sector space is quite attractive. And I must just, I must say, I really, you know, that's one aspect of my life, my working life. I really enjoy the fact that I'm in charge of my own schedule and work for myself, but still don't feel as if I'm just in it for the money. You know, I'm, I'm trying to make some sort of change. So that that is a good thing, but I've got to say, it's, it, I can't imagine how someone would do it these days. Um, you know, we've had a, a contraction of public services. Lots of people have become self-employed and markets flooded a little bit, coupled with there not being as much money around to fund studies and evaluations and research. 
So it's like the perfect storm for unemployment for people who might want to set up to become self-employed. So um, it, it is a, it's a difficult, when people say, oh, you know, how, how could I, do you think I'm ready to become self-employed or do you think I'm ready to set up on my own as independent? Um, I'm often not particularly supportive because I just think it's, it's a difficult time for those who are setting out. Um, in terms of um, kind of the quasi-academic thing, I would massively encourage it. So in my case, it just means I've got an unpaid position at the University of Bristol. So I collaborate with them on different research projects, but not for a salary. So I just I just um, work when that when there's a project that's funded, I might be paid um, a little bit for that particular project. Um, but the benefits of that are enormous because it means you can have access to the academic space, work with people to collaborate on research projects, produce papers and so on. So that i would encourage so so it's i mean what it what how i see you and and how, what it sounds like you're describing is that you're across the two the two disciplines of, of academia and basically project work um yeah for, for different different areas of public health mainly um if someone wanted to do that now because obviously you you I, I it sounds to me like you you sort of fell into that by going into an organization yeah. and then doing this yeah. and then i know you did your phd later on and an M and a master in public yeah. health before that if someone wanted to, to be across industries the academic industry and the and the sort of public health industry for example and i think that would be quite attractive because i, I speak to a lot of people and i, I feel like um yeah. i've been in a little bit of both not to the same extent yeah. as we have in the academic but certainly gone into the public health world in that way and then but i would say i've gone public health industry now so to try and provide yeah. services to the public health industry um i didn't do that looking forward either that just sort of all happened <laughs> at the time and you just did what was in front of you type thing but if someone did want to be across both they didn't want to go full-on lecturer academic but didn't want to go you know and be a public health coordinator and into the maybe the public health registrar system and then be a be a, yeah. a, a, a consultant is there a way is there a preferred way do, do you go into public health first and then do some academic stuff on the you know in this spare time or later on in your career and then become across the two or do you go academic first and then once you've got that then decide whether to go fully into academics or to step into some sort of public health world and then you've got the experience of both do, do you think there's a preference or a better way of doing that I think they're two valid models. Yeah, really. So, yeah, there is a branch of public health called academic public health, and many public health practitioners move into that and, and study the science and art of public health, mm -hmm. and and vice versa. Many people would start in the university system, and then kind of branch out and leave and set up on their own, or or do more project-based work. So that, I think they're both equally valid models. I'm not sure one's better than the other. Um, the the big the big step that you know everyone says this, whether it's bricklaying or um setting up your dream restaurant in the caribbean whatever you know the big step is leaving a job and setting up your first business mm. you know that's the scary step and i just um i admire people who do that and i'd encourage them to do it but in this particular field i just think it's a slightly tricky time to do it yeah okay great um and so where can people go to find out a little bit more about you or your projects and uh, the work you're doing nick I guess to have a look on my website. It's got examples of projects. It's, as as with most people, my website is not particularly up to date, but uh, there's there's good examples on on that of, of things that are that we're involved with. And for people who are really interested, drop me a line. What what's um, your you know, web? What's your what is your website address? Cabl.net. C A B I L L.net. 
Okay, cool. And uh, are you on any social media? For work, it's mainly Twitter. So it's C A V I L L N. Great. Okay. Um, so um, thank you very much for all your time today, Nick. It's been really enjoyable talking, as I knew it would be, um, having having done some stuff in the past together and always enjoyed it. I think that, that your experience will translate really well to, to the people that are listening yeah. to the podcast. And um, we're, we're like, like I mentioned to you before, we're across public health, we're across academics, and we're trying to get uh, people from industry. And sort of you, you're across those things quite nicely actually yeah. uh, in a non-conventional behavioral science role perhaps yeah <laughs> um, but i think it'll be really interesting for people to hear some of your experiences and to hear how things have changed over the course of your career i think it comes through in the things that you've said to us uh, uh, today um, i particularly liked the mapping work that you, you mentioned and uh, the potential for the unintended consequences which i think we see a lot across lots of different projects in public health and you know health generally and in fact wider consequences in, in, in the business world and, and in other uh, yeah. industries too. Um, so, yeah, thank you very much for your time. Uh, if, you, if, you, if you wanted to get hold of Nick, you could get hold of him on his Twitter, which is CavillN, uh, or, or also on his website, which is www.cavill.net. I just wanted to say again, thanks to Nick for being a great guest on today's show. I'm sure you found it really interesting listening to Nick's journey and some of the work that he's involved in. We'll be back again next month with another interesting guest who's working in the field of changing people's behaviour in the real world. If you want to join the BSPHN, you can do so at www.bsphn.org.uk for just £25 if you're working and £10 if you're a student or unwaged. All the benefits that you can get from that include workshops and CPD sessions, regular publications, access to a network of professionals from a range of different fields, discounted fees for events, and footage from all the recent events and presentations. You can sign up for my blog at www.busybodies.com forward slash blog for my views on public health, behaviour change and my views on running a company with the express aim of doing meaningful work and having fun whilst doing it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review on iTunes. It'll take less than a minute and may help someone else to discover the great work that's going on around the world in behaviour change. Please also subscribe on iTunes and be sure to tell people through your social media channels. If you'd like to get in touch with me, I'm on at Stu underscore King underscore HH on Twitter. And I look forward to hearing from you really soon.